Welcome to another episode of Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. I am most excited to have Heather Hang, a scientist, educator, and author on today's show, an evolutionary biologist who has studied the evolution of social systems and sexual selection. She is currently a visiting fellow at Princeton University. She hosts a popular weekly live stream with husband Brett Weinstein on the Dark Horse podcast and their forthcoming book due in September 2021. A hunter-gatherer's guide to the 21st century provides an evolutionary toolkit for living a good and honorable life as an ape in the 21st century. I welcome Heather to Savage Minds. I was really captivated by what you and Brett went through because this spoke to me what I had already myself experienced just covering one issue of gender identity. That encapsulated my experience with this, the whole get yourself educated. I'm really curious to know your thoughts about where you stand today, you know, almost four years after the incident of that infamous day of absence. How far have we come or how long have we been stuck in the same rinse cycle of wokedom? Because, you know, sometimes I wonder if we've budged at all as a society. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, if anything, it's um, it's become more entrenched. And, you know, there, there are many people who have looked at the nonsense going on on campuses, especially in the U.S., um, but, you know, obviously really throughout the weird world, uh, at least throughout the English-speaking weird world, but I think throughout uh, continental Europe as well, and said, wow, Evergreen was sort of the, the platonic ideal of, you know, what happens when this kind of ideology is allowed to um, go mainstream on a campus. And there were a lot of us who were hoping that that would mean that it would be the thing that would, that would wake people up. Um, but, you know, unfortunately it's been, you know, e many people simply still aren't paying attention. I think, you know, as, as people have children who go to college, they, you know, their children come back um, altered by this ideology, and then they start looking around for explanations. And, um, you know, we, we hear from a lot of these, of these parents, actually. Um, but it often takes that before people will see it. And those, you know, the sort of the intelligentsia, the like the talking heads um, who are the narrative and meaning makers in the media, both print and, and otherwise, um, at first we're saying it's not true. Like, you know, the stories out of Evergreen aren't true. Well, that, you know, that <laughs> it turns out that they were. And if anything, actually, we had a few journalists early on say to us, um, you know, I thought maybe, maybe it wasn't as bad as you said. And then I went and, um, you were, you were underreporting. Like it, it was far worse than you said. And, you know, this was, this was our experience. Like if we, if we started to talk about everything that was going on there, it would be impossible for anyone to wrap their minds around. And so, you know, for the most part, people have stopped, you know, saying that absurd thing. Oh, it's just not true. And now what they say is, well, yes, Evergreen was obviously terrible, but it's the exception. That's not really going on everywhere. And, you know, it's, I, I can't even, you know, part, part of what I see as my job in the world is to, you know, employ theory of mind as widely as possible and try to understand what it is that other people are actually seeing and therefore why they believe what they do. It's, you know, I'm, I'm trained in part, you know, one, one of my many sort of identities as a scientist is an animal behaviorist, and it's what I would do, you know, it's, it's what you're trained to do when you're trying to understand what is going on with, you know, a frog or a monkey. And so, you know, people are more complex and more likely to engage not just in deception, but self-deception. Um, but, 
but still it's, you know, it's, it's, it's doable. And boy, I can't, I, I have not been able to successfully understand what is actually in the minds of people who really are apparently seeing all of this and still say, ah, eh, it's limited. Everyone is an exception. Um, know what you're seeing in the media, in big tech, in the other corporations virtue signaling, in the protests that became riots nightly in places like Portland, Oregon, where I happen to live, uh, in the executive orders coming out of the new administration. You know, how how is it that you can have all of those things in what you are internalizing as reality and not connect the dots. I don't know. I saw some of this very little, albeit while I was at the university in Montreal, but I was at a Francophone university, so Mm -hmm. it was less. Since I left, I've heard that it started to augment, and this was, you know, Canada, so not geographically far removed from other Anglophone universities like McGill, and it's ramped up. What I've noticed is that and other people said this, just an editor, and my editor, in fact, from the Post Millennial, I interviewed her last week, and she said something that was really struck me. She said, the irony of this is that most of the people who are the woke karate are often of the wealthier classes, and they benefit, like Robin DiAngelo getting, you know, high figures for speaking events about critical race theory, but they cash in on it. Yet, they bear none of the weight of the oppressed class. And I found this interesting because I noticed this as well. You know, uh, all it takes to be called a turf is to recognize that biologically males and females are different. Who would have thought? I mean, I really do think some days that we're living in some, you know, really medieval period. Because who would think in 2021 that people would be on Twitter arguing about what a male or female is. In fact, they have to argue so much about it, Heather. You've seen this, I'm sure, where they can't say male or female anymore. They have to say biological male and biological female, which I compare to saying male, male, female, female, because that's their biological <laughs> determinants. That's, that's right. It's... It's absurd. And, you know, obviously there's there's plenty of historical and literary precedent for once you can control language and once you get people to agree to your modifications of language that aren't just, you know, evolving organically as language does, but that are imposed as if by diktat all of a sudden by, you know, the new religion in town, then it's easier to control the thought of those people and then, then the behaviors. And, yeah, you know, I, it's... It's amazing that we are having that argument and that, you know, the, the male, <laughs> that women aren't men argument. Um, it's by far, of you know, of all of the actual issues, um, around, you know, the remaining inequalities in the world, um, this, this one, of, of those flags that, uh, that the woke, the intersectional, the postmodernists, you know, wh- whatever it is that you want to, to call them as a tribe, are flagging, this is the easiest one to simply dismantle really quickly, really easily with just a few you know, basic biological facts. And, you know, I was actually, I was, um, I was collaborating, I don't know, last year, uh, the year before something, 2020, late 2019, a little bit uh, with uh, Emma Hilton, who is a um, 
London, I think, based uh, PhD in yeah. developmental biology, I believe, yes, and Colin Wright. Manchester. Uh, Manchester, that's right, yes, Manchester. Yes, yes. And then Colin Wright, who um, uh, is, a, is an American um, with a PhD in biology, as, as I have. And the three of us were just you know, writing a couple of uh, op-eds together. And I went, I was, I was working on a separate project, just sort of expanding it. And I asked them, you know, it occurs to me that I can't find, you know, a primary reference making the, you know, establishing this as fact. And it seems to me that that is, you know, establishing the men or women, you know, that like, that, that the thing actually that distinguishes male and female um, in our lineage for at least 500 million years uninterrupted is, is gametes, right? And this is a point I've made, I've been making for, you know, tens of years because this was part of what I was, I was teaching as, you know, as a professor of evolutionary biology. Um, and it's not actually, it's in textbooks, but it's not in the primary literature. And, you know, you as, as an academic, as a you know, former academic like I am, um, will recognize that, you know, at the point it gets into textbooks, generally what that's supposed to mean is it's so established that um, it's, you know, you, you're not really tracing it back to the first, the first people who recognized it because it's widely accepted at this point. And, you know, sure enough, these, you know, the three of us as, you know, people who are working to establish the really completely obvious truth of male is not female and female is not male, um, were, you know, unable to find a primary reference because it's that basic. It's just, you know, it's like saying um, in the nighttime, the sun is the, you know, the sun's rays are blocked by the earth. You know, like it's, it's not yeah. something that you have to cite the original source on anymore because it's so obvious. It, it is really troubling that we're living in a time where on the one hand we have this virus and there's all kinds of dissent around the way that's been politicized and how panels in politics have fit together to give us lockdown as like a, a new video game. And but even then, with this virus, it's interesting to see that the same people who know what a virus is, sort of, even if they're not scientists, they know to wear a mask, they know to wash their hands. And some of those same people will dispute up and down that sex is a social construct. They've actually inverted almost perfectly what sex and gender are. Gender is what you're born with. But... Surprisingly, Heather, you can't prove it because it's a feeling, it's innate. And it's like, it's so religious to me, the way that this new gender ideology has been framed, because now we're given the test of auto de fe. We have to now sub submit to it and admit that we have a gender identity. And what I have been saying for years to the gender ideology uh, is that I don't, you know, I don't share their ideology. I'm not an ideologue about gender or anything else. So what about people like me? And in fact, I dare say, I think most people don't go around con really considering that they have a gender or not, because I don't think it's something you possess. And so we're foisted upon this almost Catherine Wheel-like structure of having to prove by faith what we're saying we don't have. You know, it, it, yeah. this is why you'll see on Twitter, some, some of the women have have handles or descriptions to their names as gender atheists. Mm, yeah, I, that's interesting. I actually I have not seen that, but that that makes sense. I, I like that. I will say, um, 
Yeah, boy, probably probably 15 years ago when I was um, still a professor. I'm sorry, you can hear one of my cats yowling in the background here. <laughs> um, I, I had a student, really maybe the first time I had had the concept of gender come up explicitly in one of my classrooms. And this, um, you know, this is a context in which I was literally teaching sexual selection, evolution of mating systems, evolution of um, mating strategies, different strategies of males and females, mostly not humans, but I was also doing human evolution and behavior. And some student said gender um, when I think she meant sex, and she corrected herself. And I said, you know, it's, it's the same thing. And I, I was wrong. <laughs> and I, I went back to her later. I said, you know, it's, it's not the same thing. Um, and at that point, not having thought about it too much, because it really wasn't a concept that loomed large for me at all, um, I came up with what I still, I still think is true, uh, which is that when we're in animal behavior, in evolutionary biology, when we're talking about non-human animals, we talk about sex role, which is the behavior that stereotypically follows from the sex that you are. And so this comes up, um, you know, with things like in, you know, in female mice, you have a lordosis behavior that is indicative of being uh, reproductively receptive. And that lordosis behavior is part of the sex role of female mice. And it comes up in, you know, these, these reef fish that can actually change sex that are uh, what are called sequential hermaphrodites, where they are born one sex, and then when the environmental conditions change such that it makes more sense, um, and I'm sort of using air quotes here, it makes more sense um, to be the other sex, they can do so. And so they, they actually change sex. So these are actually hermaphrodites, which means they were making, you know, sperm and now they're making eggs or vice versa. Both things, both directions happen in different species. And once they change sex, their sex role changes as well. So, you know, the behavior, the sex role, and I would say that's the same thing in humans as gender, is downstream of the sex. And if you're a, you know, if you are a clownfish, to use the, you know, way too overused example as if, you know, as if humans are clownfish, um, yeah. you know, the, the sex role follows the sex. Um, and what's missing from, you know, from the human analysis is actually humans, there's never been a case of human hermaphroditism. Uh, no, there's never, sorry, there's never been a case of human sequential hermaphroditism in which, um, you know, you, you did make one sort of gamete and now you make the other. And that, you know, that's not to say I actually, I, 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 I do know some people who, who I regard as truly trans and they don't wear that on their sleeve and it's not what they want to be known for and they just want to be allowed to live their lives privately and to do the other things that are more interesting about them in the world. Um, but that being unable to live as, as, the, as the gender that they, in their brain, completely feel like they need to in order to have peace in their own brain, I'm, I'm fine letting people do that. And that is not the majority of what is happening right now with this ideology, as you say. You know, it is, it's, it's yeah. become ideology, which is to say you accept one thing, you have to accept the whole package. And that's not how, that's not how thinking is supposed to work. Well, a few weeks ago, I interviewed Ray Blanchard, who is known for mm. his work on autogynophilia. And he said back in the day, if he had any of the people that he sees all over the Twitter sphere, claiming that they really literally were going to become the opposite sex he would not have 
rubber, rubber stamp them for mm. any kind of further procedures because he, he, he said quite clearly that this was not realistic and it, it was not indicative actually of necessarily being transgender, that insistence. And I do wonder quite a bit, I wonder if we're not in the throes of some kind of wider cultural narcissism because on the one hand, we've got the trans business going on and it is very much with what Lisa Littman diagnosed amongst adolescents as rapid onset and gender dysphoria. Is it possible that this isn't just contained to adolescents? And maybe we've got something else going on in our culture and we can even step over other boundaries such as, you know, the experience that you and Brett had at Evergreen, the refusal to segregate yourself because people are more and more wanting to step away from the modality of I identify with this essence. And, and it's quite interesting because for a piece I wrote months ago, I interviewed Adam Rutherford about Darwin. And even Darwin in The Descent of Man, he makes a very blatant critique of people who believe that race is a thing amongst humans. And he even jokes about it. Um, Darwin does. And yeah. it was Rutherford who turned me on to this. And I'm thinking, this is exactly, when BLM happened last year, I, I was alarmed a bit about not, you know, that people are protesting, obviously, protest the police, protest unjust uh, murder, and so forth, of course. But what, a, what shocked me was the very inquisition-like fashion of some of the items I'd seen on YouTube, people on their knees, white people being asked to, you know, apologize, and the whole very religious orthodoxy behind that movement, which I don't think the BLM people would even acknowledge as such, just like I don't think the trans ideologues would acknowledge. But there is this neo-religiosity to both of these narratives where somehow we have to have an innate gender, we have to have an innate race, and we have to, if we don't have a specific, you know, gender or race, like if we're cis, we're, it's almost like we're Eve with the apple, you know, we're guilty of something. And if people have any lineage to European ancestry, then they too are guilty of something. And it's very troubling because it's both on the one hand racist or sexist, and on the other, it avoids the larger discussion of history, politics, and maybe you know more philosophical questions of what it means to be guilty of racism. You know, I mean, what what is going on where we're seeing people being accused of being racist, as per D'Angelo's book, simply because they exist? You know, we're talking about original sin here. You know. That's that's exactly right. That's exactly what I was going to say in response to you. It is original sin. So I heard you say, you know, two things. It's a religion. <clears throat> it is also a kind of society-wide narcissism, both of which I think are true. On the, excuse me, <clears throat> on the religion point, um, you know, many of us have said something to that effect. I think John McWhorter has said it most most eloquently most often, and I believe he actually has a book a, a book length manuscript coming out um, on uh, you know, with, with that at least as part of the thesis and I'm sure you know he's a he's an American linguist um, who is an extraordinary thinker and I, I hope 
that he that that book is able to spread this idea more widely because um you know it's it, this is precisely a kind of it's 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 this meme that has taken over and because so many people are ideologues at the moment without necessarily recognizing that if you know if you are in the US you know a democrat and um if you're if your bona fides are you've always always voted democrat and you know you you hated the administration from 2016 to 2020 um therefore we know what you think we know how you know we know what else you think about things and you know same thing over on on the red side um, and, you know, we need more people who are um, apparently on that team, again, air quotes, um, you know, who, who have those politics, but from first principles rather than from ideology, who are coming in and, you know, I, I count myself among these people who are coming in and saying, you know, yes, I actually uh, do think that we need uh, global resolutions for some of the global problems. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm that kind of person in terms of my politics, but this, this stuff that is masquerading as, as liberal is not. It's, it's anti-liberal, it's anti-democratic, and um, especially for people who like to say things like follow the science, there's a whole lot of not following any kind of scientific logic at all going on here. You know, it's it's actually when people say follow the science, too often what they mean is listen to the scientist who's saying what I've already decided is true, which is you know, really, really not what science is. And then to your point about narcissism, um, absolutely. I think we have, again, I'm, I'm hardly the first to say it, um, you know, a crisis of meaning making that... Um, you know, many people, j just as you said earlier, you know, many of the people spearheading the this sort of woke revolution are actually coming from places of real socioeconomic privilege, right? And um, you know, I, I anecdotally I saw this a hundred percent at Evergreen that it was not the um, the many many students there who were from um, lower class backgrounds, and you know, as a public a public college, we had quite a few of those. Um, it was the it was the people from privileged backgrounds who led their army effectively of lower class, largely lower class students, and um, that's pretty despicable, <laughs> actually. Uh, and it's not it's not something that is that is that is widely discussed and it's you know frankly you know if, if i were to pick any demographic to focus on with regard to you know who who is most at risk at the moment in terms of um looking towards the future it's it's going to be a socioeconomic divide um more predictable more predictive of long-term success than race, than sex, than you know, probably disability, um, but that's not what's being talked about. Now it's you know it's not immutable, um, the way sex is supposed to be, um, and you know and 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 race is, um, but increasingly at least in America, it's becoming very much harder to move between classes. Well, that's it. I mean, we're not addressing class, and one thing I've noticed the past year with the virus actually, this brought it out for me, was how God 
you know, this lightning's going to strike me as I say this next sentence. But, <laughs> I mean, you had to see me in front of the TV after 9-11. You know, I was living in Italy at the time and watched it from, you know, my partner's family's TV because I didn't own one. I've never owned a TV. But then skipping to back when I was back in the U.S. in 2002 and I would see glimpses of Fox News and I'd be like, what did they just, what? Like I was always like, WTAF with Fox News, but skip to today. And yeah. I swear to God, they're offering the more reasoned major media analysis. I mean, I say this like hesitantly as well, because obviously they're not, no, no one's perfect. But I was like covering the U.S. elections. I couldn't watch any of the major media. They were like sort of, really off and and there was obvious bias it would be you know on msnbc or cnn it was just one story after the other about how trump is crazy well might be true or not but not really helpful you know yeah. uh and That's and right. so you know I, I would go to fox for the the more reasoned barometer i guess and and i'm finding that it's Fox and other right-wing sources were more critical of the lack of support for the working class. And this really shocked me because I come from the left. I mean, no, no, the left is lost in pronouns. This is the problem. And, mm. and I've been watching this, this avalanche over years because it started with the gender identity debate in the UK, but it, it's definitely taken a foothold in Canada and the States, but around Black Lives Matter, perhaps it became the more immediate scene. I'm, I'm very worried that people are unable to see the fact of, let's say, you know, again, not to pick on D'Angelo, but that book was really bad. And yet she's still making a killing with talking about what is a racist ideology, but it's not racist, so it's magical. It's magical philosophy. Because it's completely yeah. racist. It is. It's it's magical thinking, and um, yeah, I I read it. Um, <laughs> I, I felt like I had to. Yeah. And last summer, you know, within you know, shortly after the the protests began, shortly after George Floyd died, and um, and you know, I'd been aware of the book for a while, and um, and I'd, I'd read parts of it before, but I read it, you know, cover to cover, and. You know, my, my takeaway was, you know, everything you've just said, but also, you know, once again, perhaps really just a, a failure of theory of mind where some of the stories that she reports about what she believed, you know, like I, I think there's a story in there about, um, I, don't, I can't remember the specifics, but, you know, she, she approaches two people whom she thinks might be the relevant authority in some situation and finds herself surprised that the authority turns out to be the black man. And, you know, this, this in whenever the book is written, you know, a few years ago, and I thought, well, you know what, I think what you're doing is actually revealing your own racism to the world and extrapolating that everyone else thinks like you. And guess what? You know, just because you actually seem to have, like legitimately you, D'Angelo, seem to have some racism in you doesn't mean that the rest of us do. Like, wh why don't you talk to some other people? And, you know, maybe, maybe in fact, you should be ashamed. Like, there's some stuff in there that I thought, wow, I, I, I've never had thoughts like that in my life. And... I, I I would be embarrassed and I would feel awful and I certainly wouldn't have turned it into a career <laughs> claiming that everyone else thinks like me and therefore we need to deal with the scourge of racism. Like, you know, clean your own house first. 
<laughs> well, yes, I guess, I, you know, I've known uh, psychologists who have a lot to say about psychologists in need of mental assistance, let's put it that way. <laughs> so it's, it's almost like, yes, I mean, is this a case of the uh, mental patients in the hospital leaving the asylum? Obviously, feminists and, and everyone I've spoken to about the trans issue ends up saying, well, I don't discriminate against, and we always have to start with that preface of, I don't want to kill <laughs> right. trans people. Well, you know, my whole take is I, I don't want to have language uh, spoon-fed to me, and certainly I want to be able to see the world with my own eyes and experience it and use the language I have. And we are now in this era of being forced to apologize for racism and that debate in the States has been revitalized with the need to discuss reparations, which is fascinating when you see what people have to say on this subject, including John McWhorter. Not ironically, I was writing for a publication in the States that focused on black issues. And I basically have not been able to write for them since I submitted a piece where I referred to John McWhorter. I got an oh. angry message from the editor saying, you have shitty friends. And I wrote him back and I said, well, I do not know John McWhorter. I am quoting him because what he says in this paragraph is quite interesting. And that got me a uh, persona non grata. And this is from a black publication. And I worry that if black publications are, are peddling and racist tropes, we're lost. And, it, yeah. you know, there's just so much to say about this, including the fact that, like, as I mentioned before the show, I, you know, was raised in the U.S. from the age of 10. And one of the things that struck me to the core when I was 10, moving to the Deep South, and I saw graffitied on walls, slurs. I saw slurs mm -hmm. that I knew what they meant. We were, of course, never allowed to say them. But one of them struck at, at me and I said to my mother, what is motherfucker? You know, like, I was just like, <laughs> what is that? There were other yeah. racist, there were racist slurs as well. Yeah. And I knew not to say that one. But it was very interesting because, you know, coming from Canada to the Deep South was a huge cultural shock. I might as well have been coming from much further away. At the same point, growing up in a city like New Orleans, I also saw the other side of that, which was, I lived in the time of New Orleans' first black mayor. I mm. lived, oh, I went to a magnet school where I was studying you know, biology and chemistry at college level at this really wonderful school where most of the kids were not white. And after the kids who were not white, they were mostly Jewish kids. So like, I was living in this place where I'd never met, I always had met uh, African-Americans, but never, you know, like where I grew up in Canada, there were no Jews for instance. So it was like really interesting for me who had a father from Western India and a mother of, you know, Italian Irish heritage to be in this really bizarre geographic and cultural milieu where words had different meanings. I couldn't say to the kid in my fifth grade history class, I did, I once said, can I have your rubber? And he cracked up at me because I was asking for his eraser. And uh, so language was an issue, right? Yep. Oh, that's, uh, that's, that's such a wonderful set of stories. Um, I, I'm, just, I'm reminded of one of, the, one of the drums that I beat all the time. And, you know, you, you lived, you know, I, I feel like we could con collect all the anecdotes 
with the hypothesis in advance, and I feel certain that the data would bear this out, that the more experiences you have that are diverse from the ones that you are most familiar with, be it you actually moved from Canada to the American South when you were young, or you know, in my case, I you know, I grew up in LA, um, and um, and yes, we you know we took road trips around the West a lot um, as when I was a child, but it wasn't really until I was a young adult that I started traveling widely for my tropical field research, but. You know, it just, it really only took one extended trip, and I guess it wasn't even field research yet, but when I was, oh, I guess maybe 21, 22, um, actually Brett and I then, um, uh, then just, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, um, took a road trip um, around Central America and had a number of experiences which revealed just, just how different and frankly, privileged life in the United States is, what the things are that we don't do as well, you know, the, the sort of demotion of family and, and such in many parts of the U.S., and what things, because of, you know, really because of our wealth, and I'm talking society-wide, not my own, you know, personal wealth, you know, I, I felt, you know, I, we didn't have a lot of uh, pocket money at that point, but certainly I was coming from this upper-middle-class place, and, you know, we were traveling in my old, you know, 15 year old car um at that point but that that was enough to set us you know wildly apart from really even you know middle class you know mexicans guatemalans all the way you know we went all the way down to costa rica and since then it's you know i've i've lived and worked now in madagascar which is where i did my dissertation research and um and also spent time in a lot of other places in latin america one of the reasons that I ended up doing study abroad with students was, yes, to reveal to them the amazing evolutionary diversity of the organisms in the Amazon and in the Bocas del Toro archipelago in Panama and you know, all of these things. But really it was to take them out of their familiar zone, their comfort zone, and say, and, and, and not even say in advance, really. Um, you know, this was one of the most important lessons that I had to offer that um, was more powerful if I didn't say much about it in advance, but made myself available to talk about it as we wandered through these places with respect and humility and recognizing that this was not our home, but the homes of people whose places we were in. And look how different and look how much what you Americans who've never been anywhere before, which is the case for most American college students, look how much you take for granted. Look how much you thought was the default human condition that many people just never have. And so, you know, everything from language, as you say, to, you know, to food, to, you know, interactions between the sexes, um, whether, you know, what, what dancing with someone might mean, you know, in terms of implications for future behaviors, you know, all, all of these little things turn out to have meaning that reveal, guess what, we all are unique, different human beings that have something to offer the world, and if you are literally going to claim that what is going on in the U.S. or the U.K. or really almost anywhere in Europe at this point um, is reflective of the worst, most authoritarian, regressive regime that has ever existed on Earth, you got to get out more. Like, learn some history and go some places. Absolutely. I um, I spent 
Well, I bet we were in Central America at the same time. <laughs> hmm. um, I, I did a lot of my research there for my master's, especially in Nicaragua, where I was, I was doing research for a master's in comparative literature. So I did work in the Isla Sestolentaname there. Um, but what really struck me in my first attempt to live outside of the States and I, my first job was after university. I was in this little German town in Switzerland. Crazy experience. But I was basically living, if you've ever read Krabbel's I Serve the King of England, I feel like I lived that And right after college. I was working with this crazy hotel restaurant owner and basically filling all the holes that they needed to fill in the kitchen, go and get cheese, go and chop the garlic. And then can you fill in at the bar? So I was doing that. But then after I started my master's, I was in Central America and dealing with people who, as you said, I mean, the poverty is the first thing you notice, but also mm -hmm. the kindness. Because yeah. when I would see people in Brooklyn, when I was, you know, back in the States, talking to people from uh, Mexico, Honduras, and calling them their English incorrect, I would look at them and I was like, hmm. how much Spanish do you speak? <laughs> you know, I would throw yeah. it back because... I tell you, my Spanish became really good because of the kindness of people. And mm. I dare say, even though I was raised bilingual, I've seen the way the French, pe the French treat English speakers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One would only wish it were the same reception, you know what I mean? Yeah. And there's something to be said for these experiences of kindness and intercultural relations, no? Yeah, ab absolutely. Yeah, no, the, the, the interactions that you can have, I... Yeah. With with strangers in places even where you don't speak the language, and I, you know, I wish I wish I had um, your facility with languages. I have, I have, I have never mastered any of the languages in which I have um, the dominant languages in which I've spent time, other than English. And so, you know, in Madagascar it was French, and I took French in high school. But my French was always pretty terrible. And then the Malagasy French is, has evolved somewhat since they kicked the French out in the late sixties, um, and. You know, unfortunately, Malagasy, the official language, is sort of disappearing. That even even the poor in Madagascar tend to speak French, uh, and so Malagasy will probably is will probably be a dead language fairly soon. So I, I speak even less of that, and the same same thing for Spanish. But you know, even even with my you know, especially back in the '90s, you know, appallingly poor Spanish, my openness and my interest in communicating. Um, even without, you know, verb tenses, <laughs> was enough. It was always enough. And, you know, that's, that is something that I think if you've never been outside of your, your Western bubble, maybe you don't have any way of knowing that. Yes, and it also brings down back to planet Earth the very real implications of having a certain type of material reality or not. Because... I lived in, very briefly, the Quiche region of Guatemala and the poverty there and their history with the massacres of the government, um, you feel it. I'm sure if I went there right now, I would feel it because it was devastating. And so when you see a bunch of people on the streets of Black Lives Matter last summer saying, defund the police, and not ironically, these very same people, I just published an article today, in fact, about this, are... Look, I don't like that representative from, was it Georgia? 
But the fact that they're now trying to criminalize certain types of political thought, even if it's QAnon, which might be, you know, bat nuttery, but the implications of what that means for our country after McCarthyism, after the Patriot Act, after I did work in, in Brooklyn on the disappeared men, and mostly men, actually, after 9-11, our government disappeared 14,000 Muslim men, primarily. And, and this was very, I mean, aside from the ACLU, I don't know of any other organization or media outlet that covered this. And, you know, it's, it's disturbing to me that on the one hand, we're the most, you know, certain people in our country are the most oppressed people ever. And they ironically have book deals and, you know, they've got uh, Netflix uh, films made about them and all these speaking gigs. They're not oppressed. Okay. And on the other hand, we have a history. And I do wonder, when I was speaking to Glenn Lowry, he was on the show, he was like one of my first guests on the show, and he said to me, why are we talking about that? You know, referring to slavery. And it's true. Like, I think in a way, because, you know, growing up in the States from the age of 10, I began to see that this was the imprint. In fact, when I moved to the States, guess what TV show was on TV? It was Roots. It was and, Roots, yeah. Yeah, and that was like it. You know, this was, is it that we as a culture in the U.S. have an obsession with this? Because it seems that we, you know, as a culture, regardless of skin color, I mean, a lot of the Black Lives Matter protesters, a great number were not black. Is that our only way of redeeming ourselves? Is this the new religion in the absence of the old religion? Yeah, no, I, I I absolutely think it is. And of course, Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter have extraordinary conversations between the two of them on, on the regular um, uh, around issues related to this and many other things. Um, you know, I, you know why, why are we still talking about this? Well, you know, we, we should still be talking about slavery, of course, but um, <clears throat> the idea that it is, that it is the only <clears throat> way in which humans have behaved abominably to one another um, is obviously wrong, and everyone will say that. But we are we are also expected to accept their ranking. That you know this is this this happened. Yes, and it was appalling, and it has tendrils into the present for sure. With regard to, for instance, you know manifestations in terms of how much wealth black families tend to have compared to how much wealth white families tend to have. But we aren't supposed to be talking about the other horrors and you know we boy again we saw this at evergreen where the equivalent the sort of the the nascent black lives matter movement there uh which it you know it was already a thing you already there was already being encouraged that you put uh, blm posters in the windows of your office and if you didn't that was a signal that you were kind of not on board um but those were the people in charge of what became the protests there. And they signed on with the Native American um, population on campus. And you know, being in the Pacific Northwest, there's a, we, you know, we, we have a strong Native American presence. We actually had some programs specifically about uh, indigenous um, arts and culture. We have a longhouse on campus, traditionally built, uh, and in which some um, traditional ceremonies um, took place on, on a regular basis. And, you know, Brett and I are watching this, this supposed collaboration unfold. This is before it ever went public in the, 
you know, nearly violent way that it did in May of 2017, and thought, this is a, um, a cynical collaboration, and the Native Americans are going to be thrown overboard by the, you know, by the other activists as soon as the other ones get what they want. And, and sure enough, you know, we, we never heard much uh, about what actually happened to the Native Americans on the American continent. And, you know, I don't, I don't think that we, we should all be forced to focus on that at all times either, nor do I think we should all be focused, forced to focus on the actual Holocaust at all times either. But, you know, let's just take those three, those, those three incidents of human atrocity from history. And you, you, you really want me to rank them? I, I'm not interested in doing this. That feels like a dehumanizing, frankly, disgusting exercise, and I'm not going to play. I agree, on top of the fact that we're in the throes of, I mean, that's, huh, I, I, I have my hands in the prey position now because I'm just hoping that Biden can really mean what he set out to do about Yemen and yeah. Syria. I mean, oh my, you know, that just, these are human rights atrocities in the making that have somehow escaped the media uh, in terms of depth and, and development of stories. I mean, we, there were journalists certainly covering this, but few. Um, in fact, the way we are given news by major media tends to be very spectacularized. About a week ago, I did a screen cap of CNN and I basically marked it up as if it were a student paper because the whole thing was ridiculous. <laughs> no, it was fun. two weeks ago. It was right after Biden took power and CNN was still running 80% of its front page on Trump. And I thought, oh, okay. They had, they, yeah. as my mother would say, they're secretly in love with him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're, I mean, that, that's, that's it. And you know, it's, I, I was, I, I'm not a fan of either of them. I, I actually, I, I actually didn't vote for either of them. I, I never, I never was going to vote for Trump, but I couldn't bring myself to vote for Biden. Uh, and I wondered in advance of the election, um, what, what the media, which you know, as you say, is is mostly um, of this particular sort of woke ideology at this point, would do without the enemy. And, um, you know, sure enough, they're doing what they can to keep the enemy alive. And it's not, it doesn't, that part doesn't seem to be working as well as they might hope. Um, but, you know, what we, we were told, we've, we were told in the, in the media, we were told at Evergreen that the ideology, the woke ideology was a response to Trump. Well, no, it wasn't. This was happening before then. This was, you know, if, if I'm, I'm compelled by um, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff's analysis in Coddling of the American Mind, um, that really sort of 2013-ish is when you started to see the rise of what they're calling um, safetyism on campuses. And that, you know, it's not it's not the same thing, but that, that safetyism, the... Um, desire for and then the acquiescence by administration by administrators such that it's a demand for um, totally safe spaces and comfort at all costs which of course is antithetical to education um, paved the way for really absurd claims that no one is pushing back against because to disagree is practically a hate crime that plus right. the fact that students around 2000, well, where I was in Montreal, it was around 2006-ish, 
they suddenly became referred to as clients in the literature we would get from the president and so forth, right? Yes, yes. No, this, I mean, this is, I unfortunately follow the money in all of these stories, right? And um, at the point that higher ed became sort of explicitly, it was always, it has, there has always been implicitly some of this going on, but not just explicitly, but unapologetically about profit motive, about we are going to treat students like clients and um, treat uh, treat faculty like um, what they're there for is to do the bidding of the students and you know start advertising our schools on the basis of how good the parties are going to be and whether or not there's a pool where you can hang out with your friends. Um, this this was definitely um, facilitating the descent of higher ed, and uh, boy, there's just you know I, I used to actually I used to begin um, first day of all of my classes when I was a professor. Um, one of the things I would say in my in my spiel, which which changed a bit every time, but um, one of the things that became constant was um, I'm not uh, you know you're not my boss and I'm not working for you students. Um, you know, I, I work for the, for the college and you are paying tuition to the college and we are here, um, because we are interested in educational experience. And, um, it is true that I have some, some power over you because I will be the one writing the narrative evaluations at the end here. Uh, we didn't, we didn't have grades, which I think was actually a, a good thing, but, um, you know, I, I will be the one writing those, but, um, and I am the one that the college has hired and has the relevant degree such that I am teaching the things that you showed up in this classroom to, that you were interested in, but I don't work for you. And that's a good thing all around, but you know, don't, don't mistake our relationship for one in which if you have a complaint, um, this is about, this is like customer service. That's not, that's not what it is. I'm going to push you and I'm going to pull you. And my job as I see it, in fact, is uh, going to be, uh, revealing to you your own actual biases, like actual biases and thought patterns uh, that are restricting your ability to see reality and be your best self in the world. Not, you know, not customer service. That's truly, you know, one of the problems I'm seeing within what I've read since I stepped out of academia. Although that said, in 2013, I was at Goldsmiths and, you know, I saw it, I saw it full on. Uh, I just didn't react to it because I thought my job as a professor was to expose students to various texts and ideas through these texts and develop those within the classroom discussion. And in fact, you know, in some countries, like, you know, I found this out when I was teaching uh, years ago in Italy, and then again in, in the UK, that students aren't necessarily obliged to attend classes. And I made that part of the requirement. And so I would have heads of departments coming to me and saying, but you can't do that. Oh, and here you can't have them write every week. Why not? Because they don't do that for their other classes. And I said, mm. okay, well, that's, they do it for me. Well, then you can't grade them on it. I'm like, okay. Like there was this obsession in the UK with uniformity. And I, you know, and they said, well, it's just, it will be less work for you. And I said, well, I'm sure that's the case, but that's not the point my whole ethos, and I would teach students this the first day when going through the syllabus, I'd say, you, you know, you're, you're free to not read the literature, 
But if you don't, you're coming to class and you're empowering me to lie to you because I can tell you that this text says anything. Yeah. And so, you know, I thought my, my task was not only to examine certain concepts that were brought about by the text, but also to encourage students to have a curiosity about their subject matter such that they would want to like i mean isn't that the idea you go to university because you want to be exposed to many types of ideas not that you want to go to an ideological training camp which seems to be the current case oh exactly and you know if 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 you show up in a classroom as a college student and what you're immediately trying to do is figure out how not to do the work why are you there and unfortunately sometimes the answer is because i need the degree because that's that's the that's the imprimatur that I need at the moment to do to you know be comfortable in the world later on. Not that it is anything like a guarantee at this point, but I'm I'm reminded another another story from my past as a professor. I was teaching alone a freshman program. So at Evergreen we did full time. So when I was when I was teaching alone, I had those 25 or however many students it was. It was generally a 25 to one student faculty ratio entirely for you know 16 hours a week I took them on I think we did three or four different overnight field trips for a total of like 14 days over the course of this quarter usually intense so and it was freshmen so I was with these 18 year olds and you know freshmen freshmen are young in a way that even sophomores aren't you know fresh especially if they're fresh out of high school and um it wasn't I, I put I put a lot into this program I'd really designed it very carefully it was called nature's prose and um I was I was interested in helping them create habits of mind and habits of body and spending time in nature um, every week in the same place and also every week in a different place. It was a spring quarter program, so they were, I wanted them to be able to watch how things change seasonally in one place and also if they moved between places, what they were seeing, and then to write about it in a ton. So that, that was the, the prose part. And, um, and it didn't take. Like, it was, in some ways, my my most failed program, I think, at least in my estimation. And yet, um, so, and this was, this was a moment when we were hearing from the administration that there was a huge problem with retention. And there were so many students who would come to Evergreen and then leave, and we really, as faculty, it was our job to make sure that students stayed at the college. And at some point mid-quarter, I had gotten pretty fed up with the fact that students were doing just what you said. They were showing up not having done the work, you know, having spent not having spent time out in nature um, in order to formulate the ideas that we were then going to be discussing and or and or not having done the reading. And I I gave them a, a speech in which I said, among other things, if you're here in this program, when I was so clear up front about what it was that we were going to be doing, and you listened to that and you stayed because you thought you were interested in it, and four or five weeks later, you can't bring yourself to do the barest minimum, you really need to think about whether or not you should be in college right now. And I'm not telling you that you aren't college material or that you shouldn't be in college at some point, but you know, a gap year is a worthy thing. There are lots of things that you can do such that when you come back, you actually appreciate what is on offer here in a way that, you know, many of you don't seem to be able to now. And I'm not, I'm not telling you that you're bad people, but that there are decisions that you're making that render this, you know, much less of an education than it could be. 
And I, I thought at the time, okay, so exactly in the same week that my administration is telling me I have to do everything I can to increase student retention, I'm telling my students to drop out. Um, <laughs> I wonder if that's going to come back to me. And the following fall, we got the numbers again. And oh my God, so many students, especially freshmen, um, did not come back. And this is really bad. And we really need to do everything we can. And I kid you not, not a single one of my students dropped out. Like everyone else was dropping out left and right. And I was not trying to, you know, this was not like reverse psychology that I was doing on them. But the fact is that I cared enough to speak truth to them and to just be just be super clear and say, I don't assume you have to be here because society is telling you you have to be here. Figure out what you want. Find your passion. Don't sit there and be cooler than thou. That's not the way you're going to find passion and, and productivity and love and creativity in the world. And they all stayed. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't receive any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, so we do depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Well, it's interesting, you know, Heather, because we are living in a very changing world in terms of what education meant when you and I went to university and what it means today. I'm sure you're aware, even geographically where you live, that the top tech firms are now hiring people right out of high school who've learned to do things even online. And I think it's quite interesting that when students say, well, I would get different answers than you would because I wasn't in the hard sciences. So I had students saying to me, oh, my mother or my father really wants me to study law or science or this. And I, you know, I would say, well, you know, uh, you have to do what your you know, heart tells you. Obviously, yeah. if this is about jobs, um, you could just skip university altogether and not be in debt ever. And mm -hmm. because the way the job market was, and even in New York in the, in the late 90s, we were already heading towards bad times. And a lot of, uh, if not most graduates, even of places like NYU, their best offers were unpaid internships or being a barista. Now, this is the thing. We have this very strange culture, again, talking about, you know, BLM totally eliding class issues, where we have this, I don't know, almost like John Hughes fantasy of the world, you know, those kinds of films, right? And, yep. oh, you know, remember, do you remember St. Elmo's Fire? And everyone's going to go to Georgetown and we're going to be a lawyer. Okay, mm. great film, or not necessarily that film, but the great <laughs> right. idea for a pop, you know, a bubblegum film. But mm -hmm. the reality is, a lot of people are insurance brokers. They they do coding for HTML, and they have to switch photos. Or one of my students years ago had to find little miniature refrigerators for this ad firm she was working for. <laughs> these are the real. Oh these are the reality of jobs, right? Right. And it's almost like we're. You know, as professors, we were setting up students for this this continued conveyor belt of more and more dreams. And mm -hmm. I can't imagine what it's like today. I'm so glad I'm not doing it because I, too, 
back in even the late 90s and certainly throughout the early knots, I was telling students who would ask me for letters of recommendation to go to graduate school. I think I had one or two students that I did not say, don't do this. Mm-hmm. Even if they were good students, mind you, um, yes. spend a year taking a year off. And I would tell them, go to Nicaragua, go mm-hmm. and grow coffee, learn how to do that. You know, I'd give them the craziest ideas. Some of them took me up on it. You know, and I would be like, oh, it's very easy. You just, you can get a three hundred and sixty nine dollar round trip flight to LaGuardia or Kennedy. And, you know, I had students that did that simply because I said, you know, getting a master's. Where did we get this idea suddenly that now we're nobody if we don't have a master's? Remember when, you know, having a bachelor's was okay, but now you're nothing if you don't have a master's. (laughs) That's right. That's right. So I that's that's very interesting. Uh, Both Brett and I would also dissuade students. And, um, you know, in, in the sciences, it, there was uh, also an easy, uh, a, a, an easy line to draw, which was um, you don't go into debt in grad school. Almost all of our students had debt from college um, because these, these were not students for the most part whose families were paying for their college. Um, but if you, you know, in a PhD program in the hard sciences, at least in the U.S., um, for the most for the most part, you either get RA ship or TA ship or some combination of that, and you know grants, and um, master's programs not so much. And so, you know, I would say if you if you're really set on this, um, you know, apply to PhD programs, and even if you don't think you want a PhD, uh, you can always leave after a master's, and um, you won't go into any more debt doing so. But I, you know, I, I cannot, I, I, I just can't, in good conscience, um, advise that it's a great idea to spend more time in school, given what academia is looking like right now. And you know, related, um, I sometimes had students come to me. You know, I, I, one of the things that I taught was was animal behavior, and like I really, I, 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 I walked students through. I showed them the entire gamut of what you needed to do, and I, every single one of my students, um, did. And you know, most of it failed because most research fails. But you know, from going out into nature and uh, making an observation to generating hypotheses that might explain it to figuring out what the test, either careful observational or experimental, would be in order to discern between the hypotheses. They collected the data. I taught them enough statistics to analyze their data. They did the literature review. They wrote the paper and they gave the talk to the class at the end. Like they did an entire piece of research like, you know, frankly, most PhDs don't. Like most PhDs walk into someone's lab and do a tiny piece of research at this point. And Part of the reason I had students do this was animal behavior in particular, um, you know, m- more so than I think many of the other fields that are sort of a- around um, field biology, you know, tropical biology or ecology or something, um, is highly romanticized. And, you know, everyone's got Jane Goodall looking at chimps in their heads as, you know, this is the thing you're going to walk right into. And the fact is most animals don't do anything most parts of most days and you can't even find them anyway. So um, it's, you know, you really have to have the right personality for it. And part of what I saw my job as was revealing to students the reality of what the work was so that they could be realistic about whether or not it was actually something they wanted to do. And, you know, I often had students come to me the sad part to me was apologetic at first and say, oh, yeah, I'm really sorry, Heather. I just, I don't think that I want to be a scientist. I'm like, terrific, like, great. Like, you, you, you can think scientifically. That's what I want for everyone. But 
I, if you know, if you thought that I wanted to make a clone, then you know, I'm sorry that I ever left you with that impression. Like my my <laughs> whole reason here was, you know, my raison d'être was to allow you to see enough of what was possible so that you could discover what you need to do in the world, not what I am doing in the world. Well, here we are amidst a pandemic where I was joking with someone last spring about how suddenly overnight everyone's a Twitter epidemiologist. So mm -hmm. it's great to have science, but then we've gone from everyone being informed about, you know, quote, unquote, got to put that in quotes, informed about COVID-19 and the various worries and even uh, fake news around that to the female penis. And, you know, I saw your post the other day on Twitter about the ACLU, and it's broken my heart, the ACLU, because I agree with, I mean, I, I mentioned earlier, uh, when I was working on my disappeared project in New York, I worked with the ACLU. They were one of the few human rights organizations in the country that recognized and spoke to me at length about what happened post 9-11 with the many disappeared uh, immigrants from the Muslim world. But... They have jumped the shark on gender. Yeah, they have. What do yes, you make of this, Heather? I mean, seriously, we are in trouble. Yeah, we we are in trouble. I think I I do feel like this is one of like the fact that the ACLU seems to be lost is one of the horsemen of this of this coming apocalypse um, because they they were the organization i think in the u.s um to which you know many of us could look could rely on could say okay you know i don't i don't have to be carrying all of this myself i know that they are they are looking out to protect those who cannot protect themselves and um you know i don't i have no idea what's going on at, you know individually within you know within conversations and and rooms at the aclu um I, you know, I know that they've got at least one, um, you know, Twitter savvy trans lawyer uh, yep. who, who posts a, a lot. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's possible that, that that person, that Chase Strangio is actually sort of the epicenter of the ACLU's pivot into ludicrosity. I, you know, that's, it, it's at least a possibility. I, I honestly don't know, but it's heartbreaking. I agree. Yes, I've been following Strangio's uh, tweets for years now, and it, it defies logic because, uh, back to your earlier point, um, I have friends who identify as transgender. I've known many people throughout my life. Um, I have no beef with anyone's personal decisions about what they do. I do have an issue now, however, and I do criticize my past self for my complicity in this because... I was asked to teach queer theory at New York University. I was taught queer theory. I regurgitated queer theory. Mm. And I, but I, in my favor, I was doing this before queer theory became really nutty. Uh, queer theory in its early days, and I include Butler's incomprehensible book, um, <laughs> that, the first book, uh, she mentions nothing about any kind of cosmetic or bodily surgeries. In fact, she mentions nothing about having an essence, a gender. This is rubbish. It's been concocted. It's, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking, as it were, for the gender movement. Uh, gender theory and queer theory was very much about mainstreaming uh, homosexual desire 
in its early days. And you had people like Michael Moon and Eve Sedgwick in, in, at Duke mm -hmm. doing some really good work in literature yeah. and admirable work. You had people all over the country doing cultural studies and trying to get gay film into cinema studies syllabi. Okay, great. You had uh, other people looking at same-sex desire. I mean, there's some uh, beautiful books. I read one and taught one about, you know, Rock Hudson's Apartments. And it was all mm -hmm. about the gay desire in all of his Doris Day films. And it was really great stuff from a cultural studies perspective. Nowhere did I, and if I had ever seen that there's the female penis or there's the internalized gender identity, I would have been what? Like, I know myself, I would have stepped back from that. I got out though, and I moved on to other projects. But this really has struck me as something that we need to address, because when you have the ACLU, an organization that I hold dear for many of their past initiatives and, and legal pronouncements, I, I wonder if this isn't, like you said, coming just from Strangio, or if this is something much deeper, what some of the feminists are calling institutional pull or institutional capture. We're seeing Alison Bailey, a barrister in the UK, is now taking Stonewall to court over their attempts to police speech. And there's mm -hmm. bullying around that. Uh, I'm sure, well, maybe you haven't seen this, but this has been going on for several years now in the UK where cancer research a few years ago was advertising pap smears, I kid you not. And you have to recall, you know, these are countries with high immigration numbers and they're saying, you know, people with a cervix. Well, oh, the yes. average immigrant Ugh. is not gonna get any of that and they will miss out on having life-saving tests. And then, you know, people with breasts, I, I think I made that one yeah. up, but I'm not making up the next one, menstruators. Menstruators, yeah. Heather. I mean, I tell you what, it's gotten to the point that I get so angry some days that I just want to write the CEO of these organizations and say, can you just call us dumb bitches? Because that would be less <laughs> offensive. Yeah. You know? Yep. No, I I I hear you, and I I feel the same way. I um, you know, I think there there is a place for such anger, and you know, we we all need to make sure not to lash out, um, so that we can get canceled, um, because our voices are necessary, and yet. Um, this this feels like it's reaching such an insane fever pitch that, and I, I actually don't remember if it was in fact the ACLU's just disgusting pronouncements this last week about um, you know basically men are women and women are men and you know men deserve to be in women's sports all of this. Um, or, you know, the UN women Twitter account um, going down the same path in the last day or so. Um, <clears throat> but I actually, I, f I found myself too, I just found myself seething and thinking, you know, what, where is this coming from? And, you know, the fact that many people are convinced and compelled doesn't, you know, and that they are following someone doesn't tell us, doesn't give us an answer to that because people are are ready to be to be led, are ready to be herded, depending on you know which connotation you want there, and you know maybe it's a very very few, um, very very focused and dedicated activists like Chase Strangio at the ACLU, but I feel certain that there's 
almost always going to be a money angle as well. And, um, you know, the, the obvious one with regard to what is going on with trans rights activism as opposed to um, the you know, tiny, tiny, tiny number of people who might legitimately um, want and deserve and make a decision as adults to be on cross-sex hormones and maybe even have surgeries. Um, pharmaceutical companies are making a killing on all of this between puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones that you will then have to be on for your entire life. And, you know, we, it is it is well documented at this point that um, much of the sort of dysregulation and mental health crisis in the weird world, at least in the U.S., um, in the last 15, 20 years is a result of the, I'll say overprescription, but it might just be flat out prescription at all of things like, you know, these neuroleptics, these um, antidepressants, tricyclics, um, the, the benzodiazepines for anti-anxiety meds. And then, you know, and those are mostly given to girls and women. And then on the boys' side, it tends to be speed. It tends to be legal speed, you know, in the form of Ritalin or, or whatever other form it's being given. And, you know, as as people have slowly become aware that actually many of those drugs, be they antipsychotics or anti-anxiety or anything in between, um, are flat out dangerous and actually creating exactly the mental health crisis that they were supposedly um, resolving, I wouldn't be surprised if this turned out to be a pivot to what will our next, what, what will our next money-making society-wide move be? And, you know, that's, that's going to sound to some people like I'm, I'm nuts, um, but I I think it is at least a hypothesis that des deserves to be on the table. Well, absolutely, because in the 1990s, uh, almost all my friends with kids who were of a certain age uh, had kids on Ritalin. This was yeah. a real thing in Brooklyn, and mm -hmm. I was shocked. I'm like, is there anyone who doesn't? Oh, no, it's normal. This was it. They were hand-waving, and no one was concerned about this. I was because I was seeing those same kids a few years later in my classroom. Mm -hmm. And I had uh, you know, various students come to me the first day with a list of maladies. And they would say, well, uh, do you mind if I turn on my work light because I've gotten on the list came. And I just thought, oh my God, this kid is either 17 or 18 and has a protracted list of isms and ETs you know, of, of yeah. various forms. And they are barely finding out who they are. I mean, I was really alarmed by this. It's it's an abomination, for sure. I mean, and it, it is a it is pandemic level abomination, and it's it contributes to why we have people you know, rioting on the streets. I think these these are these are young people who have never been able to be themselves. Like they, they many of them have been on some kind of mood disruptor their entire adult lives and much of their ch childhood lives, and they were never allowed to become themselves. And so, you know, going to places like Guatemala or Madagascar are really peaceful havens, comparatively, not to minimalize what might be going on in those regions otherwise. But, you know, you go to other countries, I'm sure you guys noticed this as well, like children 
in, in Central America, do you remember this when they'd be running along the streets with a empty bicycle ring with a stick? Yes. Yes. You know? Oh, yeah. absolutely. Or you'd go on the bus and it would be a lot of a lot of a lot of a lot of and then you know, like all the fruits would go in the window, you're sitting there and doing something, yeah. all of a sudden you've got a bag of carrots in your face. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Oh my goodness. And it's just it's a there's so much more poverty and so much more connection at the same time. And this was even true, um, you know, when I when I started traveling, when Brett and I first started traveling, and then when I was doing these study abroad trips. So we, my first my first big trip was in '91, and I I was doing study abroad with students throughout, you know, starting in I guess 2009, and then the last one I did with Brett in 2016, um, and even. You know, even in the beginning of that era, when um, when it, there wasn't so much chaos up here in the U.S., the difference in in sort of freedom to express who you were um, seemed really palpable. And I guess the the other between sort of you know young people in America and young people in Central America or South America, and um, oh, I guess the other thing I was going to say is that you said when you were teaching, you would get these students coming to you with maladies, and you know, I'm, I'm from my own time in the classroom. I know that <clears throat> I would see lists of maladies when it it was because there was an accommodation that I had to grant, um, and I also though because I did um, domestic field trips in every program, and I did these international field trips in four or five of them. Um, would get health histories from my students because I needed to have them. I needed to, you know, have them with me in case something went wrong, and um, and that meant that I would see what drugs these students were on now and what they had been on. And you know, I, I have no illusions about them having informed me about what you know illegal substances they were taking. Although in some <laughs> cases they did, they did, you know, in some cases. But that's not what the health histories were meant to describe. Um, but being able to see what what drugs these kids were on was just heartbreaking, and you know, really, it 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 did seem to to peter off a little bit, you know, right as um, more and more people were declaring themselves trans. But for a period in sort of the late aughts, early teens, um, some classes I had over fifty percent of my students or either were then or had been as teenagers on some kind of mood disrupting drug. And my God, like, I, I, I just can't imagine a society that thinks that's treating their children well. We've gotten to this point with late capitalism of affection, commonality with, between neighbors and families dissipating you know people are working more than ever the gap between the rich and the poor is so magnified now especially this past year heather but this is where we are where we have to worry about the perception of an idea that might in fact but i am not charles manson nor have i ever murdered anyone you know right and nor have i ever entertained the idea i promise yes yeah and it's just like wait a sec you know where did this shift that our looking at the sun and calling at the sun is not being called, you know, lunar phobic. Don't you know that's the moon? <laughs> and I was thinking about this in terms of, have you read Thomas Kuhn's work, The Copernican Revolution? 
It's, I have not read the Copernican Revolution. I've read Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Oh, wonder. Well, you know his his thinking then. You know how he works. Yeah. Because I love him, and I, I love the yes. Copernican Revolution because he actually goes through. He documents the pre Ptolemaic understanding of his, mm. the system and the, its variants until the eventual acceptance of the Keplerian system. And he argues that the Ptolemaic system provided a broader appeal than a simple astronomical system, but it oh. also became intertwined in broader philosophical and theological beliefs. Now, I see that very much in parallel to what's happening today. Oh my goodness, think, that's amazing. Yeah. I think if we take a generation of kids on drugs like Ritalin and others, they are also left to their own selves because the parents are out working for 60 hours a week, internet emerges, their online communities. Is it that much of a leap that kids can be convinced that they can change sex? You know, no, it's, it, it almost seems like it was designed for exactly that conclusion. And I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think it was, but it yeah. seems like it was destined, as you say. Yeah. It's, it's troubling to me because, you know, as a, as a human, <laughs> I mean, I've had, you know, I have transgender friends and of course I haven't seen them in years, but everything I've gone through the last nine years of a writing about this, you know, as it were, the, the culture wars, has left me with the whole, many thoughts. Uh, on the one hand, you know, as much as the feminists don't like Jordan Peterson, he, that he did put his finger on something about compelled speech. And why do I have to say uh, that what I see does not go with the language I know it to be? You know, I mean, would anyone put up with my calling coronavirus? Uh, orgasm? No. I mean, you know, and, <laughs> right. and where does it stop? Where does this kind of, con I call it controlling behavior because it's just insane to me that now we are being told to use preferred pronouns when back in the day when I knew people who were transgender, I did that out of politesse, but had yes. it ever been compelled, I don't think I would. And so here I am back in this, wait a sec, we're being told how to think about biology. We're being told that this is true when it's not. It's clownfish and no offense to Nemo, but no. Yes. And when I was reading your website, I came across something that brought me back to my childhood. I grew up in the 70s and I had allowance once a month, $4 a month. I know, a, a ton of money. And with that allowance, I would buy these things. I don't know if you know what these are, but they were called safari cards. And I would subscribe to them and I get like a pack of 10 or 20 every month. And I would fill up this big red box and learn about all of these animals, their habitat, their mating habits, their gestational periods, what genus, species, et cetera, et cetera, you know. And I was obsessed with the golden mantella frog, like oh. really obsessed. <laughs> then I read your, your website and you worked. Did you work on these frogs? Yeah, the, I was um, uh, Mantella arantiaca, which is the golden Mantella, is one of the species I considered working on. I, I focused on a different Mantella, but yeah, I actually I, my dissertation research was the first, and as far as I know, actually maybe still the only wild study of the behavior of the Mantellas that's been done. See, this just takes me back to the time that we could talk about frogs, and they were frogs. And, um, <laughs> right. You and Brett, both as biologists, uh, have a, a knowledge of what science means, just as the Copernican Revolution was, you know, part of an evolution of ideas. How did we get to the idea 
or that some people espouse that sex is just on a on a grayscale? Oh boy, um, <laughs> that's that's a big question. Um, it's going to have many many answers, and I I won't I won't get most of them. Part of it is, I think it's been a long. I don't know my history of like science education well enough here. So I was going to say it's been a long time. I don't actually know if it was ever true that the way that science is typically taught is how science is actually done. It's it's a lot easier and especially easy now with the rise of textbook publishers and such for people, you know, and most academics, as you know, are not encouraged to spend most of their time teaching. They're encouraged to spend most of their time um, doing research, especially in the sciences where the way that the universities get their money is through grant overhead. And so they want, you know, the universities want their faculty, their science faculty, spending as much time as possible doing grant getting activities and grant getting and grant requiring research. So if you're, what you're trying to do is minimize how much time you're spending teaching and if you also have a fairly flat version of what students are and and don't really regard them as individual human beings, which unfortunately I think I know is the case for many faculty, you take this sort of prefab curriculum from you know from Springer for, for, you know, from whatever textbook publisher you're receiving curriculum from, and you just teach the text and it gives you this litany of facts and you say that that's what the science is. And the results of the scientific process are not the science. The science is the scientific process. And it's harder, it's messier, you know, just like you, you know, your story from when you were teaching and you wanted to have students writing every week and you were told by admin or your colleagues that it was going to be more work for you. Well, yeah, it is more work. It is more work to actually educate. And um, in the case of science, it's, it's a lot more work to actually engage students with the process and to be allow yourself to be pushed by them and to sometimes be wrong and to come back and say, I was wrong, here's how I know, here's why, and I owe it to you every single time if I'm wrong to tell you so. And the vast majority of people teaching science either don't have the confidence to allow themselves to explore ideas in front of students um, or and I, th I think this is actually kind of the same thing. Um, you know, they're they're too arrogant to imagine that the students have anything to possibly teach them, and so they hide behind that, um, which actually I think belies a, a lack of confidence. Um, or they just like, literally are putting nothing into it, and so they're just teaching a, a list of things that we believe ourselves to know now are true because of the scientific process. So what this leads to is it's deadly dull. And so most people who you know were would have been excited about science early on leave because why you know why would you want to go into it if it's just about memorizing lists of things, and this leaves people doing science who are unfortunately biased towards those with really good memories and sort of an organized mind, and it's relatively rare for people to both have that and also be really super interested in. Um, what the actual scientific process is and be interested in you know, revealing that process to and reveling in the messiness of that process with students. So most people don't really know what the scientific process is or what it looks like. Um, you know, so you know, Brett and I do this, this weekly live stream podcast now and you know, new, new viewers, new listeners often say, what are they doing? Why don't they just tell us what's true about 
us about our conversations in which we're trying to tease out what the evidence is about a particular thing. And, you know, that reveals that they have been, that the, that the populace has been um, fed sound bites and by the media and a wrong idea of what science is by their educations. And therefore, when claims are made that actually have nothing to do with reality, and scientists show up and say, actually, we know that's not true, here's why, um, they actually think that, well, but I've got the scientist over here who tells me that men are women, is a rejoinder, like that's a rebuttal, and it's, it's not. You know, author an authority says the opposite thing you just said is not a scientific rebuttal. It's just, you know, it may be a fact, and we haven't yet established which of the two people talking is wrong, but saying this other person with a relevant credential says otherwise, isn't a falsification. So that's that's part of it. It's not all of it, but part of the answer to you know how did we how did we get here? The failure of education and um, the market driven media, which of course it is because the media has to make money, but um, that doesn't make right. it. Well, Matt Taibbi has this theory about the media driving hatred in dividing people, which is mm. absolutely spot on. Uh, we saw this emerge, especially after the post 9-11 Sunday news shows, and they'd have, you know, uh, the McLaughlin report and someone from the left, someone from the right. I mean, Neil Postman talked about, spoke about this as well in terms of how visual imagery was used to um, make infotainment happen. So we have, you know, uh, Good Morning America, and after the tragic tsunami in Sri Lanka, uh, this was a quote, after this commercial break, we'll talk to you about what you can do during a tsunami. Uh, I kid you not. Uh, uh, so we've yeah. gotten to the point of where everything's about entertainment, and uh, paradoxically, what you said earlier about, you know, traveling and seeing the world, having other experiences, ironically, that's part of the Mexican education system in order to get a bachelor's degree in a Mexican university, I hope they haven't changed this, you had to do so many hours of public service work volunteering. And I think all of this is really important, be it travel, be it doing work outside of the ivory towers and being able to communicate with others. Because one thing that all these identity politics protests have in common, whether it's calling women turf and shut up, like someone told me that it's shut up, you dumb bitch, turf. And I'm thinking, wow, you've said it all. You've made my point for me. Thank you very much. And, yeah. and, and you know, it's the most anti-intellectual of movements I've ever witnessed, all with the idea of we're setting the course of history right. Well, wait a sec. Don't you miss, I, I miss at least the 90s when you could sit down in a cafe, speak for hours, disagree, agree, order more cappuccino and continue. But we don't yes. do that anymore. We're, we're so removed from physical presence, especially this past year, but it's not because of COVID this has emerged. And yet everyone wants to be right. I mean, there are days that I freaking hate Twitter because even people I agree with, you can see that conversation gets stemmed down to cute retorts that are smart and, you know, really clever at times and you just hit back. And I'm thinking, well, this is just intellectual pinball. Like maybe 
you know, it's great that we can have these mechanisms, but it's not great because in a way they self-perpetuate the very thing we're fighting. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. I guess I, I have one, one ray of hope um, that I was prompted to, to think in response to what you just said, which is that um, we all, Brett and I also hear in response to our sort of putting ourselves out there, thinking aloud once a week, um, from a tremendous number of people who are saying thank you. This, you know, I, I, I am so glad to know that conversations are still happening, and also, you know, how 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 do I find these on my own? Like, how do I make conversations like this happen? Like, where where are the people who want to be having these conversations? And of course, you know, at this point, we can't know. If it's if it's a huge number of people, but it feels like it. There, you know, the the, the diversity of demographics that describe the people who are contacting us from you know all, really all over the world, although mostly mostly the weird world, um, is is staggering, and it 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 feels like there is a growing number of people who are just done with being spoon fed mainstream narratives, many of which turn out to be revealed as lies. And I, I hope that's true. I hope more and more people turn away from that and say, gosh, I don't want this to be a huge part of my life, but I just cannot do the set and forget thing on my media consumption anymore because um, I can't trust any of the sources that I've been listening to for years. Truly. I mean, I remember being able to read the New York Times many years ago. Right. And, yeah. No, but we're really, and, and this has also made me think, I was really impressed with what you guys were talking about with the Unity 2020 project, because I've been thinking along those lines um, in a different way. I just thought we need to ditch political parties. We need to ditch what I call football teams. Let's stop. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was a kid, my father would say, well, that's the one we want. And I'd be like, why? And he'd say, well, look, they're Toronto, they're Maple Leafs. And I was like, <laughs> okay, well, why do we have to, you know, like, I, I like to choose wine sometimes because I like the label. I am aware that's superficial. I'm totally aware that's superficial. <laughs> but I think we need more objective thinking. And we need to be able to, well, one example recently is someone who wrote me and said, why are you writing all this right-wing propaganda on your Facebook page? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm, I post articles, most of which, and I have to put a disclaimer every now and then to remind people I have... This is my reading list. Facebook is far less exhausting for my computer to keep a list of all these articles I want to read than for me to keep 500 um, thumbnails on my browser open. So right. there you have it. And I said, but you know, and she said, but you posted something about, and it was about 6 January. And so I just posted a piece today on Savage Minds about this because I've been unable to write about 6 January because I'm so angry about the crappy media coverage. Again, I was liking Tucker Carlson. Like he said so many great things this past month about that event. And one of the things that struck me, where was the media coverage of the throngs, the tens of thousands of people who were there who were peacefully protesting? I think we all agree the morons that invaded the Capitol are morons. So let's let's deal with them. Okay, the bracket that. Now what a, I, I want to know what those people were doing there and what they have to say. They were not all Trump supporters. I know because I had people email me photos and videos who were not. 
I know that they were not all white. Because again, the same thing for the people who sent me the photos and videos. So why is the media so intent on race baiting? And not to say what it is, because this is becoming really frustrating for me. When I see people, and yes, it's 2021, and yes, they're holding Trump 2020 banners, and yes, they discount the election. But let's listen to them, because we're going to get nowhere as a society not listening to them, you see. And I worry that this kind of digging in the heels is just making the rhetoric more volatile. It, it absolutely is. And, um, you know, this is, this is a whole other conversation, but... Uh, you know, watching the media throughout the summer since the end of May um, through, you know, practically yesterday report on the quote-unquote mostly peaceful protests <clears throat> that were taking place, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, in many cities throughout the country and the world, but in Portland, nightly, um, mm-hmm. every night, and also every single night like clockwork as the sun went down, they turned violent and they became riots and there were three or four places in the city where it happened reliably and no, it didn't happen on every street, um, but it happened every night and there was essentially no coverage of that at all. All of the coverage was of the actually pretty much completely peaceful protests that happened while the sun was up. Mm-hmm. And so there we have one piece of evidence of bias, and then we have coverage of January 6th, where, as you say, what about the tens of thousands of people who didn't get anywhere close to the Capitol, weren't going into the Capitol, never had that in their minds? Why can't we get some coverage of, of, of them and what they were doing and what their actual motivations were? Um, and so, you know, the, put those two kinds of coverage side by side, and um, the bias becomes pretty clear. Yes, and in addition to the fact that in October, uh, the New York Post was dutifully banned for a a day or two from Twitter. Um, uh, Your Unity Project account was as well, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yep, that's right. And we really do have to start joining forces with people on the other side of the aisle who share similar beliefs. And this is the thing. I don't think people on the left want to admit that they have things in common with people on the right. And part of that lack of communality, going back to our travels in Central America, is that people aren't making those travels, not necessarily to Central America, but to getting out of Wokeville, you know? Yeah. And I do think that people are living way too much online, Heather. Like, oh my, like I use the internet and I try to be very moderate in my use, uh, especially social media, but it's, it's, I can see it, it's tempting to stay on and debate about someone, you know, like that infamous cartoon, it shows uh, someone is stick figure at a computer and the person's stick figure in the bed saying, come to bed. And the person at the computer says, oh, I'll be there soon. I'm just correcting someone who's wrong on social media or Facebook. <laughs> and I'm thinking that's the sign of our times where we want to make everyone believe the way we believe. And we know that's not the case. Yeah, no, it's 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 a fool's errand, and um, and we're wasting our lives doing it, and becoming more and more polarized. And um, you know, COVID and all of the the social stuff that has happened downstream of COVID has made it worse. And it's certainly you know, just like Trump didn't create wokeness. COVID didn't create the siloing on social media, but it certainly exacerbated the problem. 
what are the solutions, Heather, to get out of this? Seriously, because my worry is we're living in a psychotic societal environment that's going to get not only worse, but the repercussions from today will be seen in, a, in two decades, and they can be tragic. Yeah, no, I mean, there, there's some stuff that will take another generation um, to escape from. Um, you know, we, we, need, we need a generation of children who aren't drugged and um, who aren't helicopter parented and who aren't um, allowed to be on screens all the time. You know, that those three things would go a long way, but um, so a lot of the damage is already done. So, you know, that's, that's necessary to begin right now. But, um, but in terms of, you know, what could change now, I think it's, I think it's the connections and, um, you know, there's just, there's such widespread capture, you know, to, to use the word that you used earlier, such widespread capture of, um, so many of the establishment institutions that, you know, the, the upside of the of you know the age of the internet that we live in right now is that you know until and unless uh, the censors crack down and we know that they do um, but you know speak speak the truth that you know uh, as much as possible uh, in in these venues like as as you're doing as I'm doing as as Brett and I are doing and um, you know one thing that Brett and I are you know it's 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 nothing that we imagined would be one of our highest callings, just like education wasn't for either of us. But we're seeing so many people who are are awake and who are looking for connection that we're trying to figure out, you know, how to facilitate the connection between people, um, because that that is going to be um, a big a big part of the solution. And I don't I don't have any more sort of granularity on that at this point. But um, be remaining open, being open, and making connections with people no matter what it is that they, uh, how different they appear to be from you in terms of their beliefs, their backgrounds, anything. Like actually being open to engaging nearly any human being as they come in the door.